The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, I hope you have the strong sense that God has been speaking to us in His Word in this series through 1 Peter. Remember, the theme of this letter is that we are to stand in the true grace of God, stand firm in it as elect exiles, which means, as the song we sang earlier says, what if disappointments, what if when friends betray us, it only reminds this heart, it's not our home? What if that's what God is doing in this world, when, when everyone else looks at suffering and hostility against Christians as a, a loss that you feel? What if it's really gain? What if it's really God at work? What if it's really blessing in disguise? And so in the context of this letter, he's, he's writing to Christians in the midst of chaos and trial and heartache and suffering. And it's not just the hardships that are general, that are part of living in this fallen world, things that happen like cancer, things that happen like COVID, things that like happen like losing your job. All of these things are sorrows, trials, heartaches, hardship, but that's not exactly what Peter's saying here, unless you lost your job because you were standing for Christ. Unless you are being persecuted because you are testifying to Jesus. He's talking about living in the context of a culture in which you are citizens of heaven and you love Jesus and others don't and whenever you stand for him, you get the blowback. Whenever you share what he says, what holiness is, and the people around you don't like it, and you get blowback for it. That's what Peter's talking about. The citizens of earth are going to treat heaven's citizens and therefore earth's exiles with hostility as foreigners, as people who don't belong, people who don't fit. And what Peter's saying in the, the structure of this letter is he saying in the beginning, listen, remember who you are. Remember who you are when you're rejected by others. Remember that you're accepted by God, chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit to obey Jesus, sprinkled by his blood. Remember who you are, that you're the saved people of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember that you are his born again, blood-bought children. Remember that you belong to him. Remember that when you have the frown of this world, you have the smile of your father. And therefore, You've got this joy, inexpressible, this full of glory joy. Even though you don't see Jesus, you, you love him. You rejoice. Remember the privilege, he says, that the things that you see of Jesus, the prophets long to see but never saw them as clearly as you do. Rejoice in this. 
and rejoice even while you're grieved by various trials because you know this is for the the testing of your faith, tested by fire so that you could in the refiner's fire have your faith shine pure. Remember whose you are. And then he says, as the saved people of God, therefore, become what you are by hoping fully, by living holy, by fearing your Father, by loving one another, by longing for the pure milk of the Word that you might grow up into salvation, become what you are. And then you remember what he said about how to live that way. How do you live as Christians, specifically citizens of heaven, among the citizens of earth and therefore exiles on earth is what you are, treated with hostility? How are you going to live? What is your life going to look like? He says, make sure that as you are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you are putting forth, shining forth, putting on display beautiful, beautiful behavior. Behavior that Christ is calling you to that only he can make possible so you're gonna look different. You're gonna stand out, as Paul says, like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You're gonna stand out with beautiful behavior. And you're gonna fight against the, the lusts of this world that are at war against your soul. You're gonna look different. You're gonna live different. And then he says you're gonna be in hostile settings. It's gonna be that you're gonna to have to submit to government. You're gonna to have to submit to unjust situations that are hard and bear up under them for his sake. You're going to be put in very vulnerable, feeling seemingly dangerous situations. But fear God, not man. And he says what's going to happen specifically when you are suffering and hostility is coming against you and people are ridiculing you, people are slandering you, saying, don't play their game. Don't let it be like a game of dodgeball where they lob something at you and you lob something back at them. Rather, have your hearts be hot and ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and love and show sympathy and understanding and hospitality and pray for one another. Use your spiritual gifts to serve one another. Even in the midst of the hostility outside, taste the acceptance on the inside of the church as brothers and sisters on the road to heaven together. Taste the acceptance of being in the family of God, living with a living hope. And now, in the fourth section of the letter, verses 12 to 19 of chapter 4, he says, I want you to understand what suffering is doing. I want you to understand how to receive it, how to respond to it. He says, don't be surprised by it. Don't regard it as something strange. Rather, rejoice in it. 
understand what it's doing. If you interpret it rightly, you can rejoice fully. He says, I want you to understand it. Not respond a certain way, but respond a different way. And so, here's the outline of these three verses. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. What is he saying? He's saying two things. First, don't be surprised. Verse 12. Rather, verses 13 and 14, rejoice. What do you do with trials, with suffering? Just don't be surprised. It's a command. Don't be surprised, verse 12. Rather, Verses 13 and 14, rejoice. What is he getting at? Here's here's the main point. Suffering, he says, should lead to joy, not surprise, because suffering does not lead to loss but gain. Suffering should lead to joy, not surprise, because suffering does not lead to loss, but gain. So let me read the text, then we'll pray. First Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you in your word That when you talk about your plans, Scripture doesn't just say the plans of your mind, but the plans of your heart. We want to understand, oh God, we want to understand why does it have to be so hard? Why is it that the more that we speak of Jesus, the more like a foreigner we feel? We want to talk about what the rest of the world is talking about, and they're fine with that. But when we bring in Jesus, suddenly the the atmosphere changes. And we're not cheered on. God, help us. Help us to understand what you're doing and to interpret it rightly that we might rejoice fully. And God, not just that we would have some cerebral understanding, but an invitation into the plans of your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at verse 12. Point number one, don't be surprised. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter's a good pastor. He knows that wherever Christians live in a distinctively Christian way is going to invite blowback. So he's assuming that rather than bending over backwards trying not to sound too Christian, 
He's saying that they're, they're hot and ready, giving a reason for the hope that's in them, and whenever they're speaking about Jesus, it's not being received well. And so he's saying suffering can't be on the outskirts of your expectations. You've got to have it ready, be armed, not just ready to give a reason for your hope, but ready to suffer, ready to know it's not going to go well often when you do that. Of course, he's already made that point clear in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. They've got to be armed for it, resolved to suffer. They need to understand that right now this temporary judgment they're receiving of hostility and rejection and ridicule is about to be reversed in the final judgment. And yet, notice he says, if suffering is seen as strange, it will land on you with surprise. You understand this, right? He's a good pastor. There, if you are getting something that you want, you don't have to be commanded to eat it, right? You give kids an ice cream cone, you don't have to give it to them and say, you eat that or else. But you do have to command sometimes if you give them vegetables, you need to eat that because it's good for you and at first taste, the texture and everything else doesn't seem so good. No, that's good for you. So sometimes you have to not just encourage but command. Okay, we're not leaving this table till you eat those vegetables. And Peter's saying it's that way with suffering. It seems strange to our spiritual taste buds. It, it tastes bitter. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't seem necessary. Why would a father plan hardship for his children? What's a funny taste in your mouth? Why would he do that? Why does it have to be so hard? Have you ever had somebody look at you as though you were strange? If you spout Christian convictions in this day, you know exactly the kind of look I'm talking about. But he's talking about Christians who receive suffering and are looking at it strange. Like if you're driving around, imagine you're, you're, you're watching this. You're seeing a car go around the parking lot, park, and then go around the parking lot again and park, and then go around the parking lot again, and park, again, and park. After a while, the people are like, what are you doing? Like they're, they're waiting for the interpretation because it looks strange. But what if the sticker on the car said student driver? Then suddenly you're like, oh, I get it. Going around and again and around and again practicing, learning to drive. He's saying Christians are commanded, don't look strange when you look at suffering like this. What is that? You're waiting for the interpretation from God and he says, I want you to have it. So you don't look at it as though it were strange because it's gonna come as a surprise and, and if disappointment is the distance between what you expect and what you experience, and you expect that when you're a Christian, people are going to like you and you actually end up losing friends, losing 
popularity, receiving ridicule, it's gonna be an even greater burden because the disappointment is going to be greater. You don't expect it, so it feels strange. And Peter says, here's the sticker that you need to put on your soul so you don't look at suffering like this. You see the clue? The clue, he says, is that it's a fiery trial. Why does he call it a fiery trial? Look at verse 12 again. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Fiery trial test. Ever heard that before? Those three words, uh, some people just read this and automatically think, oh, he's talking about Nero when Christians were being burned at, at a stake, like torched at his garden parties. He's not talking about that at all. We're, we're living in a time here in First Peter where the suffering is not primarily physical persecution, but verbal. You know that in verse 14 when he says you're insulted for the name of Christ. Look all the way through 1 Peter. It's primarily verbal hostility, slander, insults. So why does he say fiery? And the answer is in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where you've got these three things together. Fiery, trial, test. Let's read it. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you rejoice... So there's another word we're going to see in our passage. Rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. There's the word trial. So that the tested, there's the word tested, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is, here it is, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? What's the sticker that's on your soul in suffering refiner's fire. That's what's happening. This suffering is a blessing in disguise. The fire's hot and yes, it hurts. But when is the last time that you ever thought that in suffering, what I'm actually losing is dross? That what I'm actually losing are only the impurities that God is burning away, consuming, so that the gold here defined as your faith is going to be more refined. It's going to be more polished. Like what if you're in suffering, you got the sticker refiner's fire on your soul so you don't look at it as though it's weird, but you see what I'm really losing is dross. What I'm really gaining is a greater glow to my faith. The hotter the fire, the purer the faith. That maybe what God is interested in, in us, is to have our faith be refined, our faith to be pure, our love for Him to be less diluted, to be less polluted by other things, by other loves, by other competing things. What if He's just burning that away in suffering? so that our trust in Him, our rest in Him is pure, undiluted, non-polluted. What if that's what He's doing? The flame shall not hurt thee. 
I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. He's saying don't look at it as though it's as God were strange for doing this. He has his purpose and his plan. And Peter wants you to interpret it as blessing, not curse. Welcome it rather than put it at arm's length, saying, look at what he's doing. So rather than receiving it as strange and being surprised by it, he says, verses 13 and 14, rejoice. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So notice we're living in the context here of Christian hedonism. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And suffering should not be draining your joy as if you're losing the things that you love in suffering, but you're actually gaining. You're actually receiving something that's gain. So what is that? How do believers respond with joy in suffering? Because they understand, unlike the rest of the world that doesn't know Jesus, the, the blowback that we get for being Christians, though yes, it may be losing relationships, maybe even losing friendship, maybe even losing jobs, losing popularity, we know is gaining a purity to our faith. Something happening so that we're rejoicing in suffering. Why? In verses 13 to 14, he says there's three reasons. Three things that you gain that cause you to rejoice, right? Why would something cause you sorrow if it feels like losing, like defeat? Something is responding with joy because it feels like gain. I'm glad that I have this. Three things. Number one, verse 13, rejoice that you share in Christ's sufferings. At first glance, it's hard to think, okay, I'm supposed to rejoice not just in suffering, but actually what suffering means is that I'm, I'm united to Christ. That shouldn't be hard to rejoice in. Martin Luther used the, the wedding analogy to say, when you're joined to somebody else, their debts become your debts, but if they're richer than you, their riches become yours. Your debts get paid, you get their riches. This is marriage to Christ. He pays our debt. We get the riches of his righteousness. We become tethered to him forever, never leaving us, never forsaking us. He says, you're united to him. That's gain. When the rest of the world looks at what we're going through as loss, and we says, it can't be lost if I have Jesus. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I don't count him loss. No, surpassing gain. And when you're united to him, 
He says, you also not only receive the riches of his righteousness and his love and his covenant mercies, you also receive his reproach. You receive exactly what Jesus promised. Would you be surprised if you actually thought, my expectation is that I'm going to be treated better than Jesus? No, if they treated the master this way, they'll treat disciples this way. Don't be surprised. Actually, when you stand for Jesus and you get blowback, the blessing is knowing they're treating me the way they treated Jesus. I must belong to Jesus. That's the blessing of sharing in his suffering, what Paul even called the fellowship of his suffering, meaning you come to know him, an invitation to get closer to him in this. Why would we think that this would be regarded as gain? Not only, number one, that you share in his sufferings, you share in something else. Number two, you share in the glory that is to be revealed. Look at it, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's saying, not only rejoicing in what you have now that you belong to Jesus and are tethered to him forever, but rejoice that this is not what forever is going to be like. Rejoice that just like Jesus had suffering than glory, so too will you. This suffering is going to give way to the glory that is to be revealed. There's coming a day when every tear will be wiped away and the acceptance that we find in Jesus will be reinforced on every side. No more tears, no more sin, no more suffering. Face-to-face fellowship, glory is coming. It says rejoice in that. Isn't that amazing that you're called to rejoice now in something that you will have. As if because you're tethered to Christ and united to him, the future is so sure for you that you can celebrate it now. How do you do that? How do you receive then the the rebuke of the Lord in this word for what we often do We're so aware of the here and now and the tyranny of the urgent that we put blinders on and think what is happening now is all that there is. It's all we think about. Rather than just living in the here and now, that's not wrong. It's wrong when it becomes just now-ism. And you see all that's here as if it's the only thing that's there. So an analogy that that I love to use from John Newton goes like this. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we would think him 
if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage, my carriage is broken. You're walking a mile, and in a mile, you're going to get an inheritance that could buy you a thousand carriages. And now I find that we don't tend to ride in carriages anymore. So let me, let, let me just go ahead and update the analogy. Let's say that you have a car like I had growing up. We bought a car for $150 called a Ford Fiesta from one of my friends. And I discovered you get what you pay for. If you ever have seen a Ford Fiesta, it's like this big and it was an ugly car, but it was $150 and we didn't have enough cars, so I would tend to drive it. And you, you'd be riding along in it and it would start shaking and then suddenly like you'd put on the gas and you'd lurch rather than zoom forward. And you'd be driving around and it had a mind of its own. Suddenly, sometimes you'd be driving along and it would just swerve on its own, like, what is going on? And, and I didn't know how fast it could go zero to 60 because it couldn't get up to 60. <laughs> you just start shaking at about 55 and you're like, okay. Now let's say that I'm driving my Ford Fiesta, starting to shake, we only drove it around town. And let's say it, it breaks down on the way to inherit a billion dollars. My Ford Fiesta finally gives in, lurches and dies, and I got to walk a mile to the, the lawyer place to get a billion dollars. Am I going to be like just wringing my hands? Like, what is happening here? Let's say I could buy in its place, I'll trade in my Fiesta for a Ferrari. Like we were, we were in China one day, walking down the street, and this car, you could hear it for miles in the midst of the city street with buildings all along the side. This Ferrari is going by, vroom. And I didn't know if Ferraris could do this like Lamborghinis, like the, the doors go up like this. Somebody got out and like, that is an amazing car. Well, I, I looked it up. It goes zero to 60, like my Fiesta couldn't even go zero to 60, it goes zero to 60 in less than three seconds. And if you waited three more seconds, you'd be going 124. And if you waited three more seconds, you'd be going 217 miles an hour. The car weighs about 2,800 pounds and goes to 217 miles an hour in about 10 seconds cost $1.4 million. Why would I be wringing my hands at the loss of my Ford Fiesta if in the future I could buy not just a thousand Ferraris, but how many millions are in a billion? 1,000 million Ferraris I could buy with a billion dollars. My point is, just like you can't fathom having one thousand million cars, Ferraris, not Fiestas, how can you comprehend the glory that's coming? And when you talk about this life as though it's about what you're losing, it means you're not thinking about reality. You're not thinking about eternity. You're forgetting who you belong to, the God of the universe who owns everything. And he says, it's all gonna be yours. Just walk another mile. The glory 
is coming. And if you view this as loss, do you really know the glory? But third, not only rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice that you share in the glory that's coming. Third, verse 14, rejoice in the blessing of what rests on you now. Peter does something spectacular in this verse. Verse 14, this is all about Jesus here. You have the name of Jesus, and I'm gonna show you in a minute, you have the words of Jesus, and you even have words about Jesus. First, you notice he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ. Why does he say insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed? Why do I say these are the, the words of Jesus? Insult and blessed come from Matthew 5, verse 11. That's where these two words show up. Blessed are you when people insult you. He's just quoting Jesus here. He's saying what you're receiving is exactly what Jesus said would happen. You're blessed. The insult, it's a blessing in disguise because it's proof that you belong to Jesus. His words are true, that you're experiencing what he promised. Nothing has failed here. Nothing is going wrong here. What's happening is exactly what he said would. You're blessed because you belong to him. Being Christ-like often means being treated like Christ. It's going to happen. But also here you have the words about Jesus. Notice he says you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What does he mean? Let me ask you a question. Why doesn't he say because the Spirit of God is indwelling you, is in you, one Spirit-filled church. Why doesn't he say that? You often hear that about the Spirit, that we're filled with the Spirit. Why does he say resting on you? Well, you might be able to guess. Isaiah has something to say about it. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Look at what Peter's doing. He's saying not only do you have the words of Jesus resting on you when you have insults resting on you. You have the word spoken about Jesus resting on you. Namely, when Isaiah says the Spirit will rest on him and Peter says the Spirit is resting on you, he's updating the text to say not only are you experiencing what Jesus experienced, the insults that he bore are resting on you. The same spirit that was resting on Jesus is now resting on you. You belong to Christ that much. Not just his insults, but the spirit of Jesus is on you as you walk with Jesus. 
and he's encouraging you. He's, he's comforting you. He's empowering you. Just like the Spirit was at work in Jesus, he's at work in you, resting on you. But it gets better. He doesn't just say that the Spirit is resting on you. It, the ESV makes it look like he's saying two things about the Spirit, the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God. And that's wrong. It's not true. In the original language, it's not spirit repeated twice. Spirit of glory, spirit of God. It's actually spirit occurs second with God, spirit of God. And people are wondering, well, why do you just say the glory is resting on you and the spirit of God is resting on you? So they just put in there spirit of glory and of God resting on you. But they're two different things. Normally, if you're going to have these together, you'd have spirit first, modifying the two of them. What is he saying? Why does he just refer to glory? He's talking about verse 13. He's saying the same glory that's about to be revealed that I just said in verse 13 is actually resting on you right now, right along with the Spirit. It's exactly 1 Peter chapter 1 where he says you're rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory, meaning the glory that's coming, you already have a foretaste of it. Heaven is in you before you're in heaven. There's a foretaste of what's coming. There's a foretaste of the glory that's there as the Spirit is resting on you and your future is so certain and you can just taste it more and more. You've got the hope of glory raging within you as you walk through this life, this living hope that you have, tasting what's coming. You've already had a foretaste. Some people have never had a foretaste so they're not hungering for it. But others who are believers have already tasted it, so all they want is more. Oh, I'm waiting for the feast when the foretaste that I've had, imagine when this has been so satisfying and it's just gonna be infinitely more. That's what Peter's saying. Rejoice, not because you're enjoying suffering, as if it feels like revival. Pain is pain. Yet in the midst of it, what you're feeling is that you belong to Jesus. What you're feeling is that there's glory coming. And what you're feeling now is the Spirit's resting on you. And that foretaste of glory just has you longing for more. That's what he's saying. So let me close this way. The idol that I think this text just topples and I want to see happen here is a worldly way of defining blessing or the good life. How do you define the good life? The world defines the good life as the absence of things that are hard, the presence of things that you think are good, and don't even look like good in disguise. I mean good that's obvious. Like you've got a, a good life and a good car and a good home and a good spouse and a good, good, good everything else. And the good life for non-believers is defined as the abundance of good things. But we say as Christians, life 
without eternal life is not the good life. It's not the abundance of things like he's saying in chapter 4, verse 4, they look at you as though you're strange that when there's all of these earthly pleasures to be grabbed, that you don't. That you don't try to grab things that God hasn't given you. It looks strange that you would define the good life differently that you could rejoice in what to them looks like loss when you know all I'm losing is dross. That's going to be strange to them. Now let me try to make two things clear. First, that doesn't mean that when you're suffering, you're always going to feel the nearness of God. It doesn't always mean that suffering can feel like revival, like I just got glory shooting out of me in suffering. How's it going? Can't you just see the glory shining out? It's not always going to feel that way. What he's saying is that when you adopt God's perspective, you can interpret the pain. It doesn't make the pain go away. Pain is still pain, but there's a difference when you're going through something and you understand Meaningless pain versus meaningful pain. I'll give you an example of what I have in mind. The pains of childbirth. Is there anything more painful? Have you ever seen somebody going through this and the look on their face just couldn't be more painful? And then yet, when the baby is born and handed to the mother, like, You never forget the look on their face. This couldn't be more different between that pain and now this moment. And no mother holding that baby is going to say, that pain wasn't worth it. And what Peter is saying with the rest of the Bible is that these are not dying pains, but birthing pains. There's a birth of another world that's coming. And he's saying when you get there, you're not going to look back and say, I got all this and I had to go through that. No, no, quite the other way. If you can understand that these pains are so purposeful, meaningful. You can see ahead of time what they are producing. You can endure because you have God's mind and you understand God's heart in his plan for suffering. I'm only losing dross. I'm gaining a greater glow to my faith and I can't even comprehend what's about to be born. The second thing I want to say is it doesn't mean that Christians have to be dour and sour in this world, that you can't love other things, enjoy other things. But here's what I have in mind is the difference. How do Christians enjoy things differently than non-Christians? Actually, the story that always reminds me of this best was the story of of a little kid youth pastor was visiting him. This kid was young enough that he, he really enjoyed Barney. Remember the purple dinosaur who no longer is really celebrated among us and all the parents said amen? This purple dinosaur, this kid just had, had a, a themed room of Barney the purple dinosaur. 
He had a shirt of Barney the Purple Dinosaur and his, his youth pastor was visiting him one day and just looking around like, wow, look at all this. You really enjoy Barney. Like, you really enjoy Barney. Looked at his shirt. Man, you really love Barney. And the kid just went like this. He said, I don't love Barney. I got Barney on my shirt and Barney on my underwear, but I got Jesus in my heart. Jesus juked the youth pastor. I love it. This child was trying to say something as though, yes, I enjoy all these things, but I don't love them. I love Jesus. There's a difference. And if you know Jesus, it means the things that he's giving you, you can rejoice in because they're coming from him, just like a child who gets a gift and knows to thank mom and dad. To thank their parents in the same way you receive everything in this world and rather than just loving it, loving the gift, it makes you rejoice in the giver. You love, a special love for only him. So what is this life? I just just have to close with an illustration I gave at a wedding I preached at yesterday. This life is hard. I know what many of you are going through. And, and to, to call you to rejoice, I'm not tone deaf. I know what that feels like. But this life, what's it like? It's like a ropes course. Andy Crouch tells the story in his book, Strong and Weak, of his friend Carl that worked for Cornell University and just wanted two things for Cornell. He wanted them to have a, a Christian uh, house that was devoted to spiritual formation that's there today as a fraternity for Jesus. And he wanted a ropes course. 10 minutes from the campus, he built this elaborate ropes course, you know, with, with trapeze wires and with, with high uh, poles going up to the sky. And Andy Crouch and his family went with his friend Carl who designed the course and was his friend and Andy's trying to climb up this this pole and you get to the top and you're supposed to try to get your leg to do what it doesn't feel like your hip flexors can do. Get it up here. And and Andy Crouch said it was just like the, the secret really of a ropes course is knowing that actually it's about as far from real risk as possible. When you have expert tested, lawyer approved, triple checked, over-engineered systems of harnesses and ropes securing you at all times. It feels like risk, but it's actually not. So he's, he's up there trying to get his leg up and he just says, this primal fear of falling plus the fear of being embarrassed for failing just was too much for him. And yet he, he was tethered to Carl at the bottom who had designed the course and he said, you know, I know you want to give up. Let's just, just try. Just try to get one leg up there. That would be a victory. One leg. He got it up there. He says, you know, you did it. Why don't you go for the other one? And he did. He went for the other one. And he said, you know, you're, you're kind of just stooped over like this. How about you just stand? And he said, slower than I've ever stood before. He just stood up like this. And it felt like such a victory. And he said, what I realized I needed that day was not just to be tethered to somebody, but I needed a coach to push me further than I thought I could go. And do you see the analogy here? Unbelievers 
are those that think they're boasting in the fact that, that they are their own boss, that they can do whatever they want, that they can go wherever they want, when in actuality, it means you're on a ropes course and you're on your own. You're not tethered to anybody. You've got no harness. You fall, you die to everlasting fire. That's what it means to be an unbeliever. But how different for the Christian to know that this Jesus who designed this world, this course, also passed this course without a net, passing it perfectly, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, defeating the grave so that we are harnessed and tethered to Jesus every step of the way, which means we can't fall. He has us all the way. And when we do fall, sometimes it's like when I would go rappelling and I just, okay, I'm going. And they had the rope still on me and I just, I fell, but I fell with my legs sticking up in the air. Or even if you fall, Jesus catches you in his arms and you're with him forever. Oh, the glory of being tethered to Jesus forever, Christian. Can you rejoice in that? Let's pray. Father, would you now cause us to rejoice and never define the good life apart from eternal life. Never boast that we can do our own thing, which means we're, we're untethered. Oh God, even in the suffering, may we boast that all we're losing is our dross and what we're gaining is more of you, more of your presence, less deluded faith. And may we look forward to the glory that is coming as we have a foretaste and all we want is more. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.